You're listening to the Sustainable Angler Podcast. I'm your host, Rick Crawford. In this episode, I interview Todd Tanner, who's the president and founder of Conservation Hawks, which is a nonprofit whose mission is to defend our sporting heritage and pass on a healthy natural world to future generations of Americans. We talk about everything from how Todd went from being a fly fishing guide on the Henry's Fork to becoming a full-time writer, to founding Conservation Hawks and his new project, School of Trout. On a personal note, Conservation Hawks has put out some incredible films over the years that have inspired me. And those films have been centered around uh, climate change and our hunting and fishing. So it was a real honor to get, uh, to get to spend some time with Todd and I hope you enjoy. This episode of The Sustainable Angler is brought to you by Olakai. Olakai is all about handcrafted footwear, finding inspiration in Hawaiian culture and craftsmanship. Fishing is at the heart of Hawaiian culture today, just as it has been for centuries. Generations of fishermen and women expertly cast from rocky shorelines. They spearfish, throw net, and navigate their boats into the deep blue in search of the next catch. No matter how they do it, there's an attention to detail and respect for the ocean that guides their passion. At Olakai, they believe in the same attention to detail when crafting the highest quality shoes and sandals built for every type of marine environment. Olakai's water-friendly Noheyamoku slip-on shoe features razor siping for extra grip on the deck and it's designed for easy on-off barefoot wear. And when it comes to sandals that perform, Olakai's new Ulele provides the comfort and durability of a sneaker. Personally, for me, I love that Olakai is a B Corps, meaning that they meet the highest social and environmental standards. So whether you're loading up the boat or shoreline fishing from the rocks, Olakai takes you further. Find your local retailer at olakai.com. Well, Todd, I thought I would, uh, you, I, I know that you live in Montana and I obviously know, um, you know, we, we've known each other for a few years and, have, um, spent some time on the phone, get, you know, talking about climate change and the conservation hawks, but I thought we would maybe kick this call off with a little bit more about, um, you know, how did you get into fly fishing, for example, and just, we'll kind of start from the beginning and, 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 and go from there. Okay, well, that's easy enough. Uh, I've been a fisherman all my life, Rick. I'm, God, I turned 60 later this year, so it's been for, <laughs> been fishing for a long, long time. Uh, but I didn't start fly fishing until I was in my 20s. And uh, it was actually because I got pretty good at, at catching trout, which is what I fished for most of the time. I, I did some bass fishing as well. Uh, but mostly trout. Uh, and I got pretty good at that with the uh, spinning gear. And so I was looking for a challenge and uh, fly fishing just seemed like one of those things that was, it was a little different back then. People didn't look at like fly fishing back in the eighties as like a, a cool thing to do. It was more of like this, a little weird, a little eclectic, a little even misanthropic, uh, thing that that sort of strange people did off on their own 
<laughs> but I would I would watch these guys on the river, and man, I would just be like, they look like they're having fun, and it looks really cool, and it looks challenging, and it looks interesting. And I just thought, you know, yeah, I want to I want to learn about that. So I I dove into it, and uh, I have one of those. Uh, sort of addictive type personalities where if I, if I enjoy something, I do it a lot or as much as I possibly can anyway. Yep. And so uh, I, I wasn't very good at it, but I threw myself into it and through just the sheer amount of time I spent on the water, uh, I started catching fish after a while and, and yeah, I just loved it. So. Yeah, I can, um, I, I can relate. So I, I would, I would say that I have a mild form of, <laughs> of OCD. So when I, when I, when I get into something, I, I, well, maybe it's more than mild, maybe it's a little, a little bit more, but um, yeah, I really go crazy for it. And I had a, um, similarly uh, got into fly fishing in, in, in my twenties and um, have not looked back since. So it's uh it's truly, truly an amazing sport. Um, which is one of the things that had, had brought us together. Um, I had originally found out about conservation hawks through, through y'all's films. And um, those are uh, y'all conservation hawks has had a number of films come out um, a, a, about climate change and fishing. And I'm curious to know, to bring this back to what we were talking about, a little bit earlier, but when you first got into it, um, was that on your radar when you first started getting into fly fishing was thinking about how is climate change impacting our fishery? Um, no, no, not, not at all. And as a matter of fact, when I started fly fishing, you know, nobody, maybe there were some scientists someplace talking about climate change, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that was out in, in the public when I started fly fishing. So, you know, uh, and it's and it's funny. My my background, Rick, is it's sort of been like this crazy where I went from fishing a whole bunch to guiding a whole bunch. Uh, I used to guide down on the Henry's Fork and the Madison and the Yellowstone uh, River in the park and uh, a whole bunch of places down in Southwest Montana and wow. uh, southeastern Idaho. And then, as sort of a result of that, I started uh, writing about fly fishing. And uh, I, I was pretty fortunate in that it seemed like uh, most of the places that I wanted to write were interested in having me write for them. So I got to write for some critical magazines and as a as a consequence of, of that and uh, in, in becoming an, uh, eventually a full-time outdoor writer, I started uh, focusing more and more on conservation. So that would have been, oh, you know, late 90s and, and early to mid 2000s, where I really started thinking a whole bunch about conservation. But I still wasn't focused on on climate change until maybe 15 years ago. And I think, I'm not positive about this, but I think I wrote the the first climate piece for a major outdoor publication in the United States back in 2005. I, uh, I did a climate piece for Sporting Classics magazine, uh, where I'm actually still a, the fly fishing columnist and a senior editor there. And, uh, 
I think that was the first uh, the first one that was ever published. I'm not positive about that, but I'd never seen one uh, previous to that. And and I just started thinking about it more and more and reading about it uh, more and more. And then when we started Conservation Hawks, our focus was actually more on print media and the web. And so the stuff that you were exposed to with our fly fishing film, so that would be like, Chrome, which ran the fly fishing film tour. Uh, Cold Waters was the first one that uh, Convergence, and then more recently uh, in the Heart of the Rockies. All those, all those short films were focused on climate. They actually all came about from sort of like this weird conversation I had with Bill Klein of Patagonia. Uh, I had. Uh, approached Fly Fisherman magazine about publishing an op-ed on climate change. And uh, I told them that I thought, you know, I could get some interesting people to sign on with me. I can probably get Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia and I can get Tom Rosenbauer of Orvis and Craig Matthews of Blue Ribbon Flies. And I said, you know, I think that would be a, a pretty neat op-ed to have sort of a, a diverse group of industry professionals uh and except for me industry icons uh to you know to, to come out and say this stuff publicly so we did that uh and fly fishermen ran it i don't remember exactly the year it might have been like 2012 or 2013 something like that and we were trying to figure out how we could follow up on that and i was talking with bill klein who at that time was with patagonia bill uh was in charge of their fly fishing department for years and years. And we were just sort of spitballing ideas and we came up with the idea of, you know, maybe it would be fun to do a short film that people would see and we would be able to push out there. And Bill said, you know, I think Patagonia would probably support something like that. And we went forward with the idea and that turned into cold waters. And we actually shot it, uh, in the fall of 2014, uh, down in the Madison Valley on a beautiful little Spring Creek, Odell Spring Creek. And it was cool because we had Yvonne Chouinard showed up and Craig Matthews showed up and Steve Hempkins of Orbis, who you may know Steve, he's an absolutely in incredible angler and sportsman, but he also has this huge conservation ethic. Uh, Tim Romano was there, uh, you know, who was, if he isn't the preeminent, photographer in the fly fishing world he's certainly one of them so we had like this crazy group and then my son Kean, who was like nine years old at the time and, and i was sort of tagging along too so it was like this this whole crazy mix and we had never done one before we didn't know how it would turn out what people would think of it but we had worked a little bit on some short videos with jeremy roberts of conservation media and so we brought jeremy in and and he just nailed it. He knew exactly what he was doing. He did a great job. He he brought all sort of all these disparate voices together. And Cold Waters, which people can still find on the web if they go to coldwaters.org or to our Conservation Hawks website, which is conservationhawks.org. Uh, you know, you can watch Cold Waters and you get to hear Yvonne and Craig and Tim and Steve, uh, you know, talk about why climate change is so important to sportsmen and specifically to fly fishers and the trout fishermen. So pretty cool stuff. 
Yeah, no, it, it's it, it's awesome, and and there's a there, there's a couple of things. So I, I I did not know the the story behind that, which is super interesting because I nerd out on stuff like that. But the one one of the cool things um, that I think with with conservation hawks and 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 what you were talking about with with your writing, um, having like one of the first. So I guess my my question is this. So you had a piece come out, you said in like 2005, 2006, and it was on climate change and fishing. So my question is, what type of, what was the feedback like back in 2005, 2006, if, there were, if, if you were able to get any from that piece? I got a lot of feedback from that piece, actually. Uh, and what I heard was, uh, basically from a lot of sportsmen telling me, man, you really don't know what you're talking about. And I thought that was interesting because I had spent a, a lot of time researching and had reached out to scientists and, you know, felt like I had a pretty good handle on things. And so it was, it was an eye opener to me, uh, to have so many sportsmen get back in touch and say, and literally this is, oh, I was getting long handwritten notes from folks telling me why I was wrong to be concerned about this. And, and the interesting thing is this is sort of before the crazy polarization that we've seen on climate change that's happened essentially since like 2008, 2009, 2010. So it was pre that. So I didn't really have any idea what response I was going to get. And, you know, what I will say is that, I mean, certainly we, we did get some positive response as well, but mostly it was from folks saying, man, I, I just don't think you're right about this and here's why. And so it was, it was fascinating to me. Uh, but at the same time, the conversations were, were very civil and, uh, you know, people were, were just interested in giving me information that they thought was accurate. And I guess that goes both ways because I wanted to share information that, that I was convinced was accurate as well. So. Yeah, it, it, that, that's interesting. And, and that, uh, well, it, and the, the reason that I asked that is because um, I get interesting feedback. <laughs> like if I post stuff in like Facebook groups and stuff and like people get really um, – angry and like maniacal if you bring about climate change um so at least the conversations were civil i've had some non-civil responses um about this which is so bizarre to me frankly but um but everyone you know everyone has their right to to their own opinions i i happen to believe in science i think (laughs) but but that's uh that that's my choice, but it, it is a it's interesting, um, which I think is amazing that that you brought this up so many years ago, and we're it's still being debated, which is a little unnerving, I guess. But um, on a on well, a, it's you know if, if you think about it, Rick, it's not things have shifted a little bit because it's not really being debated on a scientific level, like it was in 2004, 2005, 2006, there were still scientists back then who were, you know, who were reputable people who were just unconvinced that the information they had at that point in time was not, 
was not overwhelming enough. There wasn't a preponderance of, of data that they thought, okay, I'm going to sign off on this. That's changed uh, over the last 15 years. And, you know, right now there's still, you know, uh, a pretty uh, serious and at times uh, angry discourse on climate change, but you're not going to find scientists out there saying, no, nah, there's nothing to this. Either You're not going to hear people uh, in the scientific community say the world is not warming. You're just not going to hear that. And you're not going to find scientists saying, you know, that humans are, are not responsible. Uh, Dr. James Powell here, oh, in the last, I want to say nine months or year, published a piece where he researched uh, peer-reviewed scientific papers uh, on climate change in, uh, in scientific journals and could not find anyone saying that people weren't responsible for what we're experiencing right now. And he had, oh, I don't know the number offhand, but it was thousands and thousands of papers he looked through. Uh, stuff that was published, uh, I think, from January 1st, uh, 2019 through maybe the beginning of August in 2019. So thousands, uh, thousands of scientific papers, no scientists are saying that humans are not responsible at this point. So, the, you know, the science has shifted pretty dramatically yep. over the last 15 years. Uh, you know, sadly, the you know, the, the keyboard warriors that we uh, run across on social media or on, you know, in the comment sections on newspapers or magazines, um, you know, there's still a lot of acrimony there. There's still a lot of people saying that, that, you know, climate change isn't real, that it's a communist plot, that it's, you know, a hoax, <laughs> um, you know, and, and, and sadly we, you know, I don't know how long it's going to be before, that stuff goes away. It should have, it should have disappeared years ago, but it's still out there. Yeah, that, that's 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 pretty wild. Um, and I and I, I I've experienced that that regularly. But the I think the takeaway to what you're saying is, yes, there are people with a difference of opinions, but the science is is very clear. It, it it couldn't be any clearer um, that no no you're absolutely right yeah um, you know there's there's just, there's no you know you're not going to find scientists out there saying human beings are not having an impact on the climate right now and you know to some extent that's that's sort of all in left field right because it's this we're making this sound like it's some sort of uh, analytical dis uh, or arbitrary discussion about something that doesn't really impact us. And when in fact, the reason that we're talking about this is because it has a huge impact on us. When we dump, oh, in some, some years, upwards of 40 billion tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, it changes, uh, you know, um, Acidification in the ocean, it changes the pH of our oceans. So our oceans become more acidic. It, it totally changes our overall climatic weather patterns. So we're just seeing things that we've never seen before. And so that, I think the point that we make at Conservation Hawks, and hopefully we make it effectively, is that 
when you think of climate change, you should understand that, and I don't mean you in person, but people in general should understand that it's, you know, it's real. It's happening right now. People are responsible for it. And it will impact all of us personally. This isn't something that's like this crazy amorphous threat that's going to happen to far off people in far off lands at some point in the distant future. It's happening right now. And we see it. We see it here in in the Western U.S. when we see incredible forest fires and nasty, nasty smoke where people can't spend time out, outdoors. Uh, you know, we're seeing it uh, with stronger hurricanes. We're seeing flooding like we've never seen before. Uh, in the east, the precipitation is just absolutely nuts. The, you know, heavy rainfall has gone up dramatically in the east and the upper Midwest. I mean, we're, you know, the flooding is just, is just crazy. So all of us, whether we know it or not, are being impacted by climate change right now. And we're responsible. And so it's, you know, it's sort of incumbent upon us as people who care about the outdoors, who care about our fishing, who, if we're hunters, we care about our hunting. If we're parents or grandparents, then we care about our kids and our grandkids. I mean, this is hugely important. And it's, you know, it's on us to make sure that things don't get worse. I mean, what's the highest calling for, uh, you know, for any of us is to be a steward and a caretaker for this incredible world that we inhabit and that we exist in. And, you know, I mean, I just look at it like, you know, we all have an obligation to share the things that we love and that we care about with future generations. You know, my boy is Keen's, uh, he's just about to turn 15. He turns 15 on Saturday. Wow. So, you know, why wouldn't I want to share, you know, beautiful trout streams and, and gorgeous snow-capped mountains? Or, you know, that, that I have been lucky enough to enjoy from throughout a, a large portion of my life. Why wouldn't I want to share that with him and with his buddies? And with future generations. I mean, that's just, it, it makes sense. It's part of who we are as decent, ethical, moral human beings. And so I look at it like, you know, let's do this. Let's, let's figure out how we address this. Let's make the necessary changes and, and do whatever we have to do so that we hold up our end, that we, you know, we give our kids and our grandkids an opportunity to enjoy the fishing that we love and the hunting that we love, uh, to enjoy, you know, strong economy, uh, a, a country that, you know, bears some resemblance to the, to the wonderful country we grew up in. So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. And, and, and so, so this is, a um, I want to get into, conservation hawks but before we we do that i'm i am jumping around a little bit i'm not really following uh chronologically but i'm going to kind of go back to this really quick so you'd mentioned you started fly fishing you go late 90s early 2000s you start getting interested in, in conservation and you've and you started conservation hawks in in 2014 is that right no, 20, let me see, 2011. 2011. And we started, we went, 
we went public in 2012. So it's uh, we're eight years plus into the you know into conservation hawks as a as an organization out in front of the public eye, which doesn't seem possible. I mean, these years have just literally just flown by. Uh, you know, but it seems like the older I get, the more that happens. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I, I I can relate with a. 17 month old daughter all of a sudden blink and you're like is it monday or friday this week um so 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 anyway um but yeah so okay and then when when were you guiding out out west i mean you live out west but when were you guiding you know the the uh, some of those epic trout waters um what, what time period was that so I started guiding in 1992, and I guided full-time for five years. Uh, and then uh, a little after for another five, you know, occasionally for another five years, because I had a lot of friends in the industry who would say, oh, can you help me out for a day or two here or there? But in general, uh, starting in 97, I was I was writing pretty much full-time at that point. So, uh, and, you know, it's it's one of those things where, writing is great for me because it helps me focus on the things that uh, I want to uh, concentrate on in my life. And so, you know, for a long time, I've, I've, I've concentrated on fly fishing and writing really helps me sort of distill down the, the various aspects of, of fly fishing. I mean, I'm, I got pretty crazy with it, Rick. I mean, there were years where I'd fish, you know, 250, 300 days a year. You're my hero, Todd. You're my hero. And not, you know, I mean, not all day long, every one of those days, but yeah, I'd get yeah. out, I'd get, spend at least some, some time on the water. You, you went um, a lot. Either, yeah. Either, either fishing or, or guiding or both, uh, you know, and it's back, back when I was guiding, it was like, you know, we, we always, we sort of had a, I worked for a guy named Lynn Sessions on the Hendricks Fork, uh, Lynn on something called Last Chance Lodge and Outfitters. And he had sort of an unusual take on guiding, uh, which was, which I heartily uh, endorsed, which was that, you know, if folks wanted to show up early and stay out late, then we were going to do that. We were always going to go the extra mile. Uh, if they wanted to go out late and come in early, you know, no, no guidance right mind or her right mind is going to complain about that. Right. But it was, it was, you know, we would just always go the extra mile, but at the same time, you know, usually by like no, six o'clock or seven o'clock at night, I was, I was back with clients and, you know, had my waders on, might as well go fish. Right. So, right. Uh, I mean, I just, I just, I never could get enough of it. I, I just absolutely love it. And I love it to this day. Uh, you know, I mean, I still, uh, you know, get out and fish whenever I can. I was out uh, day before yesterday, uh, which was cold and windy, and there's you know still snow and ice around. But it's uh, not not quite as much as I'd like to see at this time of year. But uh, you know, I, just standing in the water and and casting a fly rod uh, with as much grace as as I can muster is a, is an absolutely wonderful thing. So. That's awesome. Um, and, and, and then you went into to, to full-time writing after guiding and have had, you know, pieces published 
all all over the place. I mean, um, not only in fly fishing magazines, but but um, in publications, but but others as well. I'm curious to know basically what was the the moment or what happened when you were like, you know what? Because what it sounds like is you're like, hey, maybe the best way for me to make an impact on climate change is to use what I'm good at, which is I know about fishing and I'm and I'm a great writer. So why not marry the two? I, I'm curious to know what is the what's the story behind being like, hey, you know what? I think I'm we're going to start conservation hogs. Well, first off, I'm going to back up just a second and say I, I've never thought I was a great writer. Oh, <laughs> come right. on. Uh, there, I, I, uh, there are there are some. Uh, I, I am very fortunate. I have I have some pretty incredible friends who are great writers, and I and I look at those folks and I, uh, I appreciate the level of talent and commitment it takes to write really, really well. And I do that occasionally, but you know, the, the, the great writers do it all the time. And I've never put myself in that category. Uh, but to, to get back to your, to your more recent question, uh, conservation hawks started because I didn't think that I was having enough of an impact on my own. And uh, I actually had uh, editors telling me, no, we're not going to publish uh, climate change stories in outdoor magazines because we think it's a communist plot. And I just thought, you know, here's something that's hugely important. It's important to me. Uh, it's important to my son who, you know, when I started thinking seriously about doing something with conservation hawks it was he was you know five or six something like that so we uh, we by we i mean i i sat down and i talked with a bunch of, of people who i admire uh and respect and asked them for their advice you know how can we make a difference here and you know i had conversations with oh, guys like oh ken barrett and Ryan Bussey and folks like that. And I was like, you know, we need to do something. How can we do this and be more effective? And I picked a lot of people's brains. I, I talked to a lot of folks and, and we decided that, you know, the way to go forward was to, um, and I should, I should, should say, uh, neither Ken nor, uh, nor Ryan are, are affiliated with conservation hogs. They hopefully they won't get mad for me sharing that information. But uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, the, I reached out and I reached out to Bill Gear, who uh, at the time was the uh, climate change initiative manager for the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, uh, and to uh, oh, a, a bunch of folks. I talked to Hal Herring, uh, who is an incredible conservation writer for. Field and Stream magazine and other other magazines, and, and just took in as much information as as I could, and put together a little a little group of people. Uh, the idea is not that Conservation Hawks is a membership organization. We're not out there like Trout Unlimited or Backcountry Hunters and Anglers or somebody like that who you know are consciously trying to grow, uh, you know, a huge group of supporters. We're more of a of a little media shop, really, and so what we want want to do is as easily as we can, as effectively as we can, uh, we want to reach sportsmen, uh, 
anglers and hunters all over the country and just get them engaged on climate change. I mean, the single most important thing that people can do right now with climate change is to talk about it because we don't talk about it enough. It just doesn't come up much in conversation for most people. We need to change that. We're never going to have the kind of national climate policy. Uh, we're never going to pass strong legislation unless we start talking about it more. So that's like the main thing. So if we put out a film or we help get a story published, or if I'm, we're speaking on uh, you know, podcasts or radio or something like that, uh, you know, hopefully we're incentivizing anglers and hunters to, to look at what's happening around them and to say, you know what, man, this is what I'm seeing. Because literally, Rick, I mean, think about it. Most of us, we walk out the front door and we see things that are different than they used to be. Yeah. I mean, literally right here where I am right now, if I walked out, if I walked out the door and stood out in the driveway and looked around uh, I'm actually looking out the window right now. I mean, I see dead and dying trees. They're dying because our climate is changing here. I mean, we know that. That's science, okay? This is stuff that's it's not conjecture. We know it for a fact. Um, you know, I'm, we're early March, and I'm seeing flowers push up here, and I'm, you know, an hour and a half south of the Canadian border, and just a just a hair west of the continental divide. I mean, I shouldn't have flowers popping up here right now, but I do. Yeah. And you know, our snows come earlier and they uh, excuse me, come later and they leave earlier. And you know, the runoff comes earlier, and so our trout streams are lower in the summertime and warmer with less dissolved oxygen for the trout. So that makes things tough. Right. Our fisheries are, are, are getting hit. You know, we're having closures that we never used to have. And, you know, there are all these other things going on. We're getting these crazy fire seasons. I, I was having lunch uh, and ran into a buddy of mine well, not too long ago and who's been here forever. He's been here for like 50 years. And he was saying, you know, I never used to even worry about July and August with forest fires. Sure, they'd happen occasionally, but it wasn't like a normal thing. And now if we have a year without fires and without smoke, it's like everybody's talking about that. It's like, wow, what an incredible thing. We didn't have forest fires last year. Who can believe that? You know, So it's just things have, have shifted and not for the better, um, not in a positive way. So if we can get... And, and, and so what do you see? I mean, tell me, what do you see where you are? What's different now than it used to be? Well, that, well, that that's, that's exactly what I was um, going to, going to mention. Cause I mean, it, we're, we're seeing it. I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. So we're, we're, you know, opposite ends of the country almost completely. And I, what we're seeing is uh, every year is a new record for number of days flooded. Every year, uh, 2019, I think there was, I can't remember the exact number. It was over 70 days. And so, for example, our, our, gover our local city government now is about to invest a lot of money into building a seawall to protect downtown. Um, I, I won't get into whether I agree with that or not, but 
the point is it, it's downtown Charleston. It's uh, downtown Charleston is on a peninsula is flooding so frequently um, that they're having to look into, okay, well, how are we going to stop this from, from basically drowning the city? Um, we're seeing, I saw some guys recently who were catching snook in Charleston. Um, which means that so basically a f- freeze will will kill snook up here because that's that that's too cold for them. But the fact that they're this far north tells you that their migratory patterns are shifting. And I was talking to um, Tony Friedrich and and those guys from American Saltwater Guides Association. This is the most. This is one of the most mind blowing things to me. There is a white shrimp fishery that is opening up in Virginia this year, which they've never had before. White shrimp have never been that far north. So they're actually opening like where you have to get a license to be, to, to be a shrimper in Virginia, which they've never even had before. Um, and so they're starting to see less stripers and more redfish where a redfish would be super common. Um, you know, obviously where I live in Charleston, uh, but you'd maybe occasionally catch one in, in Maryland um, now they're they're very common. So you're, you're what we're seeing is, and actually last week, uh, a week ago from today, it rained for two days straight, or maybe it was Tuesday and Wednesday, but it rained for two days straight. And I think we got over two inches of rain, and downtown was flooded again. Um, married that with the, with some bigger tides that were coming up to the to the full moon. I think is today. So you're seeing increases in flooding, increases in moisture. And from a fisheries perspective, the they're changing their migratory patterns. Um, and if that's not a, you know, for, for whatever reason, if you see a lot of an increase in flooding and that doesn't get your attention, um, maybe as an angler, you'll realize that, Hey, wait, hang on. Why are these fish here? Uh, well, at least get you thinking about it. Why, why are they in Charleston? Why, why can we catch snook in Charleston? I've never even, I never thought that was possible. And the reason that that's possible is that they just survived an entire winter without it really getting cold enough for them to die off. Um, and they're making their, for, their, their way further up north. So those are some of the things that, that we see in Charleston, not to mention, um, you know, just the, the intensity and, and frequency of, of, of bigger storms. Um, so it, you know, like you said, climate change is happening right now as we speak. Um, and we see it all the time here in Charleston and, and having a 17 month old daughter and knowing that the world that we'll be leaving behind for her is one of the, is one of the things that, that motivates me. And so that's, um, you know, that's why we're having this conversation, right? I, I think that everyone could agree that, you know, it would be an incredibly selfish thing to do <laughs> to, to leave a place worse off than, than you found it. Um, so it's, we're, we're, we're seeing it happen right now. And, and it is, it is really, it can be terrifying, I guess you, you really could say. The, the flip side to that, is um, there's also some really cool things happening. And for me, to uh, Conservation Hawks films 
um, really inspire me. And everything from, from, I remember seeing, I went back and got uh, to school in 2009. Um, I'd, I'd fallen in in love with fly fishing. I was living in Wyoming at the time. And I, so this was 2009. I went back to school, got an MBA in sustainable business, was in the sustainability field doing renewable energy and green building, but always was trying to figure out a way to marry fly fishing and sustainability. And cold water was one of those things where it was just like, Oh my God, that's amazing. Like that, that's it. Like, like conservation hawks has, has got it figured out like that that this film is such a good medium to and I, I don't do films but i'm just saying the it was it was really inspiring to see that and and to see people um, of influence in the industry talking about climate change and those are you know those are the things that if we there, there are a lot of crazy there are a lot of crazy things happening um but if we can focus on solutions and what we can do i think conservation hawks has done a, a an amazing job of that with your films well well thanks rick i you know it's it makes me smile to, to know that we were you know an inspiration to at least some people out there and and hopefully that will you know that will continue to the point where you know we start making the kind of, of you know uh, societal shifts that we that we need to make. We need to, you know, get away from fossil fuels, and we need to stop treating the the atmosphere like a, you know, a, a sewer, like a repository for our industrial uh, waste, which is sort of what we do right now. And but you're right. There's there's some really good stuff out there happening with renewables. There's some really good stuff with uh, with solar. And I think the thing that that really uh, makes uh, makes me sit up and take notice is when I see uh, really major players in the outdoor world starting to share the same messages that we're sharing. So, I mean, you know, Patagonia has been a leader for this uh, with this stuff for a long time, but you're seeing some other really great companies like Orvis doing tremendous work right now, uh, really stepping up to the plate and, and doing what they need to do uh, with uh, climate change and, and with renewables and things like that. Uh, scientific anglers. I mean, we've, uh, you know, one of the things that I, I used to uh, spend a lot of time telling people when they watch our films was to watch it all the way to the very, very end, because then you'll see who's actually supporting these films and what, which companies in, in the fly fishing world are standing up, with us. And so it wasn't just Patagonia and even or the Patagonia Borvis, but, you know, scientific anglers have supported us. Uh, I mean, uh, Sage and Rio and Reddington, I mean, all these uh, incredible companies, Winston has supported us. Um, all these folks understand what's happening. And when they have the opportunity to, they're, they're starting to display some real leadership. So, uh, you know, uh, Fish Pond, uh, another another company that uh, really is doing some some cool things. There are so so many great people in the fly fishing world now, and you know, if it was going to change, if it was going to change from that old from the old days, sort of before the uh, River Runster that came out on on film. You know, it was funny. I was guiding when uh, 
when the movie came out and the <laughs> next year we were like, wow, where did all these people come from? Who knew that there were this many people? And, you know, so I've sort of, I've sort of been around the industry long enough to have a feel for what it was like before it got big and before it became like sort of the cool kids thing to do. Right. And, uh, one thing I never anticipated though, was just how, I guess, uh, just how intelligent the industry response would be to an existential threat like climate change, because you're seeing all these companies, all these brands stand up and say, yeah, we need to protect our rivers. We need to protect our waters, our saltwater flats. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's these threats out there and it's obviously, it's not just limited to climate change. I mean, I, in 2000 and Seven, I believe it was. I flew up to uh, Alaska and spent a week at Alaska Sportsman's Lodge uh, and did a piece on the Pebble Mine. Uh, and I was blown away that you know we would even consider anything like that, right? I mean, here's this this amazing, beautiful landscape. It's vast. It's it's uh, just gorgeous i don't know if you've ever fished up there but it's nuts it's so good and here we are looking at you know putting this boom and bust mine in a place that's geologically sensitive that's prone to earthquakes and that if the if the dam uh fails you know these rivers that are literally irreplaceable these iconic wonderful alaskan rivers in the bristol bay region are gonna get just trashed forever I mean, the you know you can't put billions and billions and ton of tons of, of toxic mine tailings at in the you know in the upper reaches of these watersheds and expect that some huge earthen dam is going to hold this stuff back forever in an area that's prone to massive earthquakes. I mean, it's nuts. And so I never thought you know uh, that obviously I never thought that should go forward. Uh, and it's it's mind blowing to me that we're still fighting that battle now. You know, twelve years later, thirteen years later, it's crazy. But you know, I give folks like Patagonia, Orvis, uh, these companies that you know that do so much. Uh, you know, they have not given up. They're still out there fighting. And I don't know that we would have seen that in the fly fishing industry. You know, thirty years ago. I mean, the people who are who are in charge now are smart and engaged in aware they know what's going on they know what's at risk and they're standing up for themselves and they're standing up for you know for our, our rivers the streams our, our oceans it's it's a it's the kind of thing that you know even though uh you know we face some huge challenges right now it makes small know you know how many really bright intelligent decent people are out there working on this stuff and and we need more, uh, you know, we can't be satisfied with where we are now, but it's, you know, there are some, some really talented folks, as you know, I mean, I've, I've had the opportunity to listen to some of your podcasts and these are the people that you're featuring, you know, sort of, uh, you know, in, in getting their voices out there. So, which I appreciate. Thank you for that. Yeah, no, of, 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 of course. Um, and, and, you know, this is, I, I agree. I, I think that you're 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 exactly right. With you know, it's not. It, it's um, we're starting to see not only 
you know, individuals care um, and want to know what they can do, which, which, by the way, I, I agree with you. One of the, um, you mentioned earlier, if anyone listening to this is saying, well, what, what can I do? Cause you can get to a point of somewhat, you know, sometimes you might feel helpless. One of the things you can do is talk about it. And, and, or, and perhaps one, the number one thing you can do, right. Is to help normalize the conversation around it because it's not, it, it, it this should not be a political conversation. This is just science and what the science is telling us. And let's use that data intelligently to protect what the the sport and, and the species that we love. And, and so just talking about it is, is something everyone um, listening can, can do, bring it up, talk to your friends about it, talk to your elected officials about it. Um, let them know that that's important to you. So I think that's, that's a huge component to this. And then the other thing that, that, that you mentioned that I think is really um, inspiring and hopeful is um, the, the companies that are in the fly fishing industry beginning to, uh, or I don't know if beginning is the right word, but um, certainly increasingly um, are beginning to make their voices heard and known and what their stance is because they're, their livelihoods are at stake um, in addition to wanting to do it for the right reasons. But um, it, it, it's, you know, no, no fish, no customers. So um, we're, I think that there's a, I think we're in the, in the midst of a, of a shift in, in the right direction. Um, what everyone can do out there listening is talk about it, talk to your elected officials about it um, and support those brands that are doing the right thing. Um, you know, if you, if, if you, ha if you need it, um, support the, the ones that are, that are going the extra mile. Um, and I think one of the, this might be kind of a interesting segue, maybe not, but one, one of the, one of the things like, Hey, well, what, what can I look for in, in brands? And so brands that give back to conservation, um, 1% for the planet, for example, or you know, like fish pond in Patagonia, they're B cores, um, Orvis donates 5% back to, to, to conservation. And, and those are different ways that you can support them um, with is, is with your business um, for protecting what we love. And that's one of the things that I, that I did just want to give a small plug for, um, for conservation hawks, which I'm super proud of is uh, Emerger Strategies is donating 1% of our 2020 sales to Conservation Hawks exclusively. And um, if you want to support the work um, that Todd and, and the folks over at Conservation Hawks are doing, um, they I'll, I'll do the plug for you, Todd. <laughs> there's, there, 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 there's a donate button at conservationhawks.org. So uh, you can make a donation today and, and help them continue to be a, a really important uh, climate nonprofit um, and, and support the work that they're doing because, you know, I, we, we can all do our part and talk about it, but Todd can get his videos in front of a, a pretty massive audience and that's really starting a, a, a conversation at scale that that we need to, to make change um, well well thanks Rick that's 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 awfully kind of you we we appreciate your your ongoing support this is this won't be the first time you've supported us and we you know it's it's the kind of thing that uh, we're a you know we're a very small group we are a 501c3 nonprofit so um, 
you know, we do accept donations and, and just thanks for, for getting that out there. Uh, I should also point out, you know, and, and I alluded to this uh, earlier, we, uh, we do have a lot of support from the industry. I mean, people uh, uh, can go and look at uh, the end of cold waters or the uh, chrome or convergence or in the heart of the Rockies and see some of the, some of the companies and also some of the other organizations that are supporting our work. I mean, we, we've been very, very fortunate and uh, we're blessed to, uh, to have, you know, such a such a large and important segment of the fly fishing world, looking at what we're doing and saying, "Man, we agree with that, and we're going to support it." So, uh, we uh, we're very fortunate, and you know, we're going to continue to do everything we can to uh, you know to get the word out. Conservation Hawks is sort of like a funny organization because we're not focused on a particular species of fish or a particular uh, type of water or water body. Um, our mandate is to look at all the different threats to sportsmen and then to decide what's the single biggest one and then focus our time and our energy, all of our time and energy on that. And we take that very seriously. We've looked at everything that impacts, uh, you know, fishing and also hunting. And there's, there is nothing else out there like uh, anthropogenic climate change, human caused uh, climate change. It's a, you know, it's the kind of thing that will, if it, if it isn't already touching you where you are, you're very, very fortunate, but it will. And we need to get a handle on it as quick as we can. So, uh, Rick, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, not only do people need to talk to each other, they need to call their elected officials. Uh, I would, you know, emails are fine. There's nothing wrong with those. Uh, you know, signing on to a petition is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But the, the single biggest thing you can do is actually get on the phone uh, and talk to, you know, you can call a senator's office or a congressman's office. Uh, that representative uh, is not going to answer the phone, but you can talk to their staff and say, hey, this is who I am and this is where I live. And this issue is important for me for these reasons. Uh, and the more we do that, the easier it's going to be to create the kind of, uh, you know, strong climate and energy legislation that we need uh, to get a handle on this. I mean, let's, let's be really frank here. This is not just a national problem. It's an international issue, but it won't get solved unless we see American leadership. We need really strong American leadership. And, and sadly, we haven't seen that recently. So, you know, we need to do everything we can to you know, reach out and get get our the people who represent us in federal government and state government, even local government, get them engaged and involved, uh, you know, and talk about this. Hey, one one other thing I wanted to bring up, and this is sort of shifting gears a little bit, but um, having been in the conservation space and the climate space for you know. The, for a long time now, at least it sure seems like a long time. Uh, people who do get engaged need to figure out a way to find balance. Uh, I know that most of the people listening to to this podcast will probably not be in the conservation space or the certainly not in the climate space, but you know, any of us who 
who spend time and effort and energy thinking on and working on climate change or other really, really major issues, you know, ocean acidification, uh, public lands is another huge one. Uh, you know, there are all these, these threats out there that, that can seem overwhelming and they require a huge amount of our time and energy. So my suggestion would be anybody who works on this stuff or anybody who thinks about it a lot, and sometimes just cut yourself a little bit of a, of a break and just grab that rod and go fishing and put it all out of your mind to recharge your batteries, right? And yep. That's vital too. You know, remind yourself why it's so important that we do these things. I mean, you know, what this all comes down to for me, I love the natural world. I love it. I am passionate about it. I love being outside. I love standing in a stream and waving a stick. I mean, it's, it's you know, it puts this huge smile on my face. And, you know, I, so I'm, I'm happy to fight for it. I'm happy to put all, all this time and energy into it. But I have to find some degree of balance in my life. And, and I encourage other people to do that as well. And, you know, for a lot of us, that means just, you know, grab your rod, uh, call up a buddy, uh, take your spouse, take your significant other, take one of your kids or whoever it might be, and, you know, go fish or hike or camp or whatever it might be, right? Spend some time outdoors and recharge and refresh your batteries because if if we don't do that then we get burned out and we're not good then, but we don't help anybody so yeah would, uh, would be my suggestion for the handful of, of, of you know hardcores out there who are listening to this and you know just don't burn yourself out too quick yeah i i think that that's a that's an excellent point um uh, because you can get burned out and you can get um it, it can be daunting, and if you don't remind yourself why you're you're willing to fight for what you love, then um, you're kind of missing an opportunity, honestly, to um, to to dive back in and, and remember why you fell in love with it in the first place. So that that is an excellent point to make, <laughs> as as everyone is gearing up and, and wanting to fight the good fight. Also, take the time for for yourself to just go out and enjoy the outdoors. Um, you know, absolutely, absolutely. You know, it's it's funny. My uh, uh, my wife suggested a couple of years ago that I I open up a side business uh, to uh, you know just to do something a little bit different. And uh, so I started a little uh, a little fly fishing school called the School of Trout, which is uh, I only do like two weeks out of the year, and. What I've learned is that having that two weeks where I don't think about climate change at all, it's like, <laughs> it's a life like this, this blessing where like I can go throw myself into into teaching, which I love to do. Right? I mean, a lot of old, uh, a lot of fly fishing guides love to teach. That's that's why they either why they get into it or why they stay in it. And it's just something I've always always really enjoyed. And so, being able to teach fly fishing, uh, and then obviously. I, I get to do that with some with some pretty cool people. We have uh, we have an incredible staff, but the you know just for those two weeks out of the year, and it's not even it's not even a full two weeks. It's a little under that, but just for that time to go and say, man, I'm only going to focus on fly fishing for the next little bit. It's it's for me. It's like it's almost like I'm not even working. It's a luxury. So it's a I I, I don't know I. 
the older I get, the more I see the need for for balance and for finding some way to you know, sort of be, think about it. We all need sustainability in our lives on a lot of different levels. And someone who uh, is only an activist, who only spends their time and energy trying to engage on these huge issues, they're, they're not going to have that balance. So, uh, you know, whatever it is that uh, that your listeners do out there, they should, you know, strive for strive for some degree of balance in their lives because it just makes everything it makes everything better and uh and it makes my i can tell you that it makes my time on the water even more enjoyable i mean i just it's it's sort of nice to think that you know i started doing something back in the 80s and here we are in 2020 and i still love it how cool is that right so absolutely and and a couple of things that, that i want to uh ask you about where where can people find more information on school of trout where's what, what where's the website with that uh it's a really difficult and complicated website called school of trout.com <laughs> <laughs> okay so, so 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 you made it you, you made it difficult for people to make the connection between school of trout and the website yeah, it's, it's, a, it's it's almost impossible. You've got to be some sort of an internet sleuth to, to find it. But, uh, uh, and, and I, I don't expect, you know, uh, we do something a little different, right? We, uh, we bring in a small number of people and we keep them for, uh, depending upon the class, either four or five days or, or a week. And, uh, and then they get to hang out with and learn from like, really amazing anglers uh and, and some of them would be names that you know that i've mentioned already you know Craig matthews uh comes down and, and talks to students tom rosenbauer comes out and shares i mean tom is just an encyclopedia of fly fishing knowledge or hillary hutchison who uh you know is is an incredible iconic fly fisher she shows up and helps out or or Bob White or, or Jeff Courier, uh, John Jurisak, who is like the absolute best fly casting instructor. And I've been around a lot of really good ones. He is, John is just like amazing. And John comes in and teaches these people how to fly, fly cast gracefully. And, and, you know, and really, you know, when you think about fly fishing, right, what's the thing that, that separates fly fishing from everything else? Well, it's the casting. I mean, you can go catch fish with a with a bait casting uh, setup or a spinning rig, and and have lots of fun. But the thing that's truly different about it is the casting. And so we spend a ton of time on on fly casting, which you know most uh, instructors or schools tend to you know they they put a little bit of information out there and then they move on. But we we actually uh, think that that's that approach leaves a little bit to be desired. So, but I get to work with, you know, for, for a couple of weeks a year with like sort of the creme de la creme of the fly fishing world with the people who, you know, I, I would want to hang out with like, you know, Kirk Dieter from Trout Unlimited comes and shares his, you know, his knowledge with our students or, or Tim Romano shows up and, and teaches people how to take great, fly fishing photos i mean how cool is that right so uh so it's it's a to me it's like it's it's sort of a blessing because it 
it does everything I needed to do. It helps recharge my batteries. It allows me to hang out with some some really great people. And and then our students are, are have been so far. I mean, I, who knows what they'll be like in the future? But in the past, they've been absolutely wonderful. Because we focus on learning. Uh, you know, there's one of the things about the fly fishing world that I don't like as much. Uh, these days is the emphasis on throwing a couple of people in the boat and floating them down the river and uh, lobbing strike indicators out with, with a couple of names and then you know, the guy jail set the hook and the client set the hook. And that's not really fly fishing. I mean, yeah, it is, it is a form of fly fishing, but it's, it's what a lot of people these days understand as fly fishing. And from, from where I sit, that leaves a little bit to be desired. So uh, we get to share some pretty cool stuff and, uh, and it's fun, and you know, it's just it's another aspect of uh, of the sport that uh, that I enjoy and that I get to be involved in. So I'm still doing some writing. I still write uh, relatively regularly about it, and you know, I get to do a little teaching. And you know, most important, I get to stand up for it. I get to stand up for the fishing that we all love. And that's you know, it's a it's a privilege and it's an honor. Uh, just to be, you know, um, that that people out there think that the conservation hawks does good work, and that we're, you know, that we're the kind of organization that uh, that they can support. And, you know, I mean, nobody's got nobody's got uh, funds that they can just afford to throw away. So when when people make small donations, uh, you know, God, we appreciate it. We love to everything we can to. It's an honor and it's a, it's a privilege, but it's also sort of an obligation on our part. We have to do as good a job as, as we possibly can. Absolutely. That sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, uh, that's exactly right. And I think that's a, uh, I think, I think you may have gotten it figured out, Todd. You've got, you, you've got, uh, school of trout. You've got conservation dogs protecting what you love. Um, but this this brings up one question because we we have talked a lot about climate and we've talked a little bit about fishing, but we haven't really talked about some of your favorite types of fishing and perhaps even species that you like to catch on the fly. So I do want to sh- before before we jump, I do want to hear a little bit about. Um, just a little bit of uh, of of Todd's favorite uh Todd's favorite fishing before before we go we, we have to incorporate a little bit a little bit more fishing into this so this, it is the sustainable <laughs> angler exactly exactly no i i uh, i agree so so my fishing is sort of different than most folks fishing in that i've done so much of it over the years i mean you know i've i've literally just spent so much time on the water that you know, I sort of have it all figured out what I really, really like and, and what I'm maybe a little less enthused about. So for me, uh, my species is trout. That's what I really care about. And I mean, I fish for other stuff. I fish for pike and I fish for bass. I am a, I'm a freshwater guy. I'm not a saltwater fisherman and that's a conscious choice. And uh, it's my hope to continue to stay married and I think it's that would be less likely if I uh, if I started jetting off to uh, saltwater locations. So, uh, but trout is trout is sort of my thing, and I like wild trout. Uh, I'm 
beautiful western rivers for the most part. I like rising trout. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, uh, that's the most interesting and the most uh, challenging fishing that I do. Uh, and so, you know, I just I have a hard time getting enough of it. Uh, you know, I love to fish the Missouri here in Montana. Uh, I love the Henry's Fork, which will probably always be my favorite river. Uh, it's where we hold the, the classes at School of Trout because it's just like it's this incredible. It's I think John Girak once wrote that there should, you know, that there should be a picture of the Henry's Fork uh, as like the trout stream, uh, you know, next to the. Oh, and the encyclopedia next to, you know, next to measurements for like the mile and the foot in the yard and stuff like that. Right. I probably mangled that a little bit. But it, but anyway, it's, it's you know, it's one of those rivers where you can go and you can stalk rising trout for, you know, for days if that's what you're into. And, and I love to pick out a particular fish and figure out, okay, how am I going to challenge uh, myself by getting in a position for him, what's he eating, uh, what type of cast do I need to make, uh, you know, figure it all out in my head beforehand and then just sort of go out and and do it. And to do it in a place, uh, the Henry Schwartz right outside of Yellowstone Park. So it's, you know, it's absolutely gorgeous country. Uh, I, I'm a Spring Creek guy. Uh, you know, I love the, the Livingston uh, Spring Creeks. I don't get to fish uh Nice Valley as much as I did when I lived down outside of Bozeman, but it's you know uh, I, you have a hard I have a hard time finding uh, anything better than you know big rising trout on a on a spring creek unless I'm in the mood to steelhead fish, in which case <laughs> I love to swing a swing a really long line for steelhead fishing, and we shot uh, chrome up on the Dandachaks, uh and the Mass Rivers up in, in British Columbia. And it's, I'm like an anachronism, right? Because I'm out there flailing away with a single-hander and everybody else is, is spay casting. And, but if you can throw uh, a single-hander, if you can make 80-foot, 90-foot casts all day long for day after day without destroying your shoulder, that's a lot of fun. And then when you get that grab, everything is just like absolutely electric it's uh, you know steelhead is sort of like what did they say about muskie it's the fish of ten thousand casts right. swinging a fly for steelhead something like that too i mean I, there have been as many days where i didn't have a graph as where i as where i have had one and it's you know i'm not sure that says anything about me i'm attracted to that kind of stuff but it is sort of fun and when you do get a fish like that it's you know, uh, all of a sudden it's like, you know, you're connected to, you know, 15 or 18 or 20 pounds. I mean, I've, uh, I've been really lucky and got some, you know, uh, 42, 43-inch fish in my life with close to 30 pounds, if not over, uh, fishing for steelhead. And it's like, what did I really do to deserve this? I mean, how lucky am I? How, how you know, how cool is this fish? And I mean, what it really comes down to, right, is that, is that, you know, we're, you know, if we land that fish, we're just hoping that a little of that mojo rubs off on us, that they are like these incredibly cool animals, these, you know, these massive, beautiful fish that were born in freshwater and, you know, went to uh, an address route, went down into the salt, spent, you know, three, four years from around the ocean and then came back. And now all of a sudden we're connected to them and, 
you know, to bring one of those guys to hand and to, you know, I mean, it's like it's the river is distilled into this creature in your hands and you're like, God, am I lucky? God, am I fortunate? And, you know, really all you can do at that point is just give thanks, uh, which, you know, we are blessed in many, many ways. And, uh, we, we need to keep that in mind as we go forward. Absolutely. Well, um, well, I think that's probably a, a great message to to end with is is to 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 just um, really just be grateful and have a grateful heart, knowing that you're uh, able to go out and uh, participate in in the great outdoors, and also uh, the opportunity to go out and and catch a few fish along the way. And um, I think all of us as as anglers um, have a, a responsibility and a duty to uh, protect what we love and uh, ensure that future generations are able to, to fall in love with, with uh, or at least get, have the opportunity to fall in love and want to protect it also. So um, Todd, I'd, I'd, I'd just like to say, you know, on a personal note, I uh, really appreciate everything that Conservation Hawks does, um, have been uh, an admirer of, of um, what y'all do and y'all's films are amazing. Um, everyone, conservationhawks.org. Um, also, if you're interested in attending a school of trout, uh, again, Todd made it difficult. Uh, it's uh, schooloftrout.com to find more information. Um, but uh, but 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 just wanted to uh, just say thanks so much for everything you do. Sincerely appreciate it, and thanks for carving some time out for me today as well. Oh, thanks, Rick. It's been a pleasure. And uh, and if anybody was crazy enough to stick around for this entire conversation, God bless them. Uh, you know, we, we did cover some some good and some important stuff. So, that, and thanks for everything you're doing. I, I you know it's huge, and, and keep up the good work. All right, so special thanks to Todd Tanner for joining me today on the call. Uh, You can listen to The Sustainable Angler anywhere you find podcasts, whether that's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, iHeartRadio. If you could, do me a favor and give us a rating and review on iTunes uh, because that helps us out a lot. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.